Good morning, Al. Hey, Karen. How are you? I hope everybody's doing well. And speaking of rich girls, I'd like to uh, <laughs> wish a happy birthday to my lovely wife, Gail, whose uh, birthday was the fourth, and to my equally lovely granddaughter, Everly, whose well, birthday happy is Happy birthday the to fifth. the Bat family, yes. <laughs> yeah, I love them both uh, as, far, as much as anybody can love anybody. A uh, friend said he saw 75 wild turkeys jogging across the road. And I said, did you count them? He said, no, there was around <laughs> 75. You know, I didn't count them. And he said they just uh, went across the rural road here, so he came to a complete stop. And I said, well, that's a rafter of turkeys. And he gave me that kind of look, like I get that look a lot. Uh, <laughs> why is a flock of turkeys called a rafter? Yeah. And I told him, I said, well, there was a, a word raft in its meaning. It was like a larger motley collection of people and other things. And Or maybe it was because when early European settlers came to America, they started building houses and barns. And what happens? They got those rafters up, wild turkeys perched in the rafters of the unfinished buildings. Mm. Or maybe it's because when turkeys roost in trees, the trees resemble rafters of a building. And I looked one up later in a, a ancient book I have here, and it says rafter implied to stitch together in medieval English and was used for groups of turkeys. Really? Huh. And I visited with a fellow who thought a flock of turkeys should be called a gobble. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. male turkeys are called gobblers because of their fame call, and it fits a mold. A group of geese is called a gaggle. But a gobble brings to mind scenes of gluttony from a Thanksgiving table that involves turkeys. So maybe I think I'm going to stick with rafter. Uh, this kind weather, boy, that's what we have to describe it as. It's kind, and it causes feeder birds to find their own food. So they kind of, they will go away from our feeders some, and the time away from feeders gave blue jays the opportunity to find a cooper's hawk in a spruce tree uh -huh. in my yard. At least 20 jays had a communal cow because of the presence of that <laughs> exhibitor. And a collective noun for Jays, it's a party, a band, or a scold. And boy, I think each name is appropriate for the noisy Jays. A uh, texter this morning said, eh, how much more snow are we going to get? Boy, you know, when I was in meteorological school, I must have, I was absent that day or napped. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, where I live, which is inside a house, we get little snow other than what I track in. The yard gets more snow, and on average here, we receive more snow from October to January than we do from February to April. So if that's any kind of guide. Uh, February, it's the breeding season for cottontail rabbits, skunks, raccoons, squirrels, great horned owls, bald eagles, coyotes, and foxes. Uh, a listener said, I don't know the sounds of any birds, and we talked about it. I said, oh, she did. We all know a sound of a bird. We just sometimes don't <laughs> think we do. It might be the quack of a mallard duck. We quack, all know quack, that. Quack. Yeah, or the honk of a Canada goose, or the haunting calls of a loon. You can't live in Minnesota and not know that. 
in another we probably all know and we just uh, don't always pay attention it's the voice of a friend a robin and before too long the robins will be singing that cheerily cheer up cheer up cheerily cheer up so it's a a wonderful time of the year um, Micah said, I heard mosquito eggs can last seven years. Yeah, mosquitoes, you know, we have a lot of different varieties of mosquitoes, and a lot of them will lay like 100 eggs at a time. The eggs are very hardy. They stick to the walls of a container like glue and can can easily survive drying out for eight months. And again, this varies from species to species. Uh, male mosquitoes? They live six or seven days, probably, feeding primarily on plant nectar, and they do not take blood meals. Uh, the females with an adequate food supply can maybe live five months, even maybe longer, but I would guess the average lifespan is about six weeks. And the average female mosquito's flight range is between 1 and 10 miles. Mm. So they can go a long distance to get us. And some they found, I don't know, I can't imagine putting radio collars on a mosquito, <laughs> but they said some have traveled up to 40 miles. And I would guess that wind probably had something to do with that. Uh, floodwater mosquito species lay their eggs above the water level in areas that are prone to periodic flooding. And these, uh, they can lay their eggs in cattle hoof prints, empty soda cans, discarded tires are great. And the eggs from these mosquito species, I had to look this up because, boy, there's such a difference in some of the studies. Three months to two years to five years to, like Micah said, to seven years. Whoa. So somewhere in there <laughs> lies the truth, I guess. And again, that we're looking at different species in different parts of the country, and <clears throat> it's just uh, all those things come into play. Uh, Ron Hartman. Ron, uh, Freeborn Lake fella, and, uh, and an excellent, uh, just a good guy. And he said, Al, we enjoyed a dozen or so trumpeter swans all summer on Freeborn Lake. They seem to leave in late fall, but now are back. The lake is still frozen over. Do they think it's April? What are they eating? <laughs> and Ron uh, had a little note. He said, I could have asked A1, or A1, AI, but I would rather hear from AB. Aww. So thanks, Ron. <laughs> I'm great to hear from you. You know, we uh, we see them sitting on that ice, and we, we have to go, Brr, we just can't help ourselves. Uh, swans are covered with this thick plumage that includes a layer of down under their contour feathers. And this keeps their uh, bodies <clears throat> insulated and warm. And swans also have this temperature exchange system in their legs. And when they're cold on cold water ice, they have this counter-current exchange system that transfers warm blood to the feet and takes the cold blood back into the warm body. But, uh, boy, to your question, Ron, what are they eating? Uh, trumpeter swans are mainly vegetarians. Uh, we all know somebody who's mainly a vegetarian. Karen, you're a true vegetarian. <laughs> That's <but> right. <laughs> some say, well, I'm a vegetarian, and then you talk to them. Well, I, w I will have, you know, spam once yeah, in a no. or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but But they, uh, they are vegetarians, 
mainly, but they will, and they feed on a broad range of aquatic plants, pond weeds, sedges, rushes, duckweed, wild rice, algae. However, they will occasionally eat small fish and fish eggs. Hmm. And in the winter months, what they're eating a lot around here, of course, are crops left in fields, corn on the ground. And why would they come to Freeborn Lake and they can't eat? Well, Freeborn Lake might provide a comfortable and secure place for them to rest. In other words, they feel at home and feel at ease there. So they can just uh, relax and then go out, maybe eat in a cornfield. It isn't very far away, so it's a short flight for them. So they will be seen in Minnesota in the wintertime, wherever you can find uh, open water. They will uh, be in there. And then, of course, if you get by some of the power plants where water is kept open, you will find them there. But and thanks, am, Ron. Great to hear. I'm seeing quite a bit of open water lately, too. I was out at Lake Washington and thinking there are no more ice houses on there thank goodness um no. i think it was last week i think i told you uh, i think there was a truck that went through there and so hopefully people are, are being smart about it because right now with the uneven temps we've had i just don't even if it gets another cold snap i'm thinking i don't want to try it no unless you're a trumpeter swan and you fall yeah. through the ice and it's a good thing they're they're happy then with the open water and that's it when they're on freeborn lake they don't have to go very far probably you know they're big birds they can uh, they can speed uh, through the air and to find open water somewhere and if nothing else they can find it at some of the sewage ponds uh, Susan Kennedy said every year the juncos come here from further north, but this is the first year I have seen them taking a bath in my pond in January. So much for snowbirds. Uh, Carol Lang of Albert Lee is seeing some pine siskins, and these are beautiful little guys, again, that look like goldfinches wearing striped pajamas. Bill Kanesha of Wasika said, uh, Al, I thought I'd send you a short note to report that two Eurasian collar doves have been hanging around the last couple of weeks in Wasika. This is the first time I have identified these visitors, although I may have been thinking they were mooring doves in the past. Very blonde feathers on these two and the distinctive black collar indeed do separate the two species. Now that I know what to look for, these two seem to appear slightly larger than their mourning cousins. Yeah, they're a little bulkier, Bill, and and part of it, I think, they look bulkier because their tail is so much shorter uh, compared to their body than is a morning dove's. But they they like it here, and they sing. They will call all winter long for no apparent reason. Uh, I'm sure it's something to just saying hi, how you doing, and maybe a little bit of territorial calling in there. Uh, Tom Jessen. CJ of St. Peter said, I received a photo last week of a garter snake crawling around on January 31st. There's another time we'll just go, <laughs> I didn't get the exact location, but I assume I was somewhere in southern Minnesota. This is only the second time that I'm aware of that a snake has been observed above ground in Minnesota in January. I'm going to read that again. The second time that a snake has been observed above ground in Minnesota in January. Outside, the that is, because, you know, we've got two inside. They're they're out and about inside, so we're good. They're doing okay in there. <laughs> yeah. they got the little parkas on. And 
The first time was in January 2012 when a DNR employee saw one at the Waterville Fisheries Department. This is incredible. It's in January. Uh, Brad Abendroth saw a trumpeter swan and a sharp-shinned hawk in Faribault County. Uh, Garrett Weiss saw a sharp-shinned hawk in Blue Earth County, as did Chad Hines. Uh, Bob Williams saw a merlin in Steele County. And Peter Nichols saw a greater white-fronted goose and a trumpeter swan in Steele County. Diane Wilson of Owatonna asked why swallows all face the same direction when perched on utility wires. I'm sure you've all seen that. You're driving along. Here's all these little swallows, barn swallows, tree swallows, bank swallows, something, and they're on the utility wires, and they're all facing right at you. And that's so they can share cute videos on their phones with one another. So it's And probably so when they get their picture taken by us, they're all in it instead of looking at their rear end. Uh, there are two reasons, two true reasons that I can think of. Uh, when birds flock, they generally fly in the same direction. So if you're in a flock and you leave the utility wires, you're all going to go the same way. You don't want to be that guy flying the wrong way and all the rest are sniggering about it and what a doofus that guy is. So it makes sense that they'd face the same way before taking off. So it just makes life easier. Uh, Birds are built to face into the wind, so it's easier to take off and land while facing the wind. So if the, the there's a good chance they're facing into the wind. So they all face into the wind. Uh, facing into the wind will reduce wind resistance and it limits ruffled feathers. And, and it makes it easier to watch the cat videos that they're looking <laughs> at. But, you know, if you're, they're on there otherwise, then they're struggling to stay on the wire because the wind is just ruffling the feathers and blowing them around. You're not aerodynamic from the back. Do animals that turn... Oh, I want to thank everybody at the Owatonna Women's Club. What a wonderful group and allowing me to speak to them in, uh, in Owatonna. And somebody there asked me, do animals that turn white in winter still turn white when there is no snow? Um, Yeah, weasels, all our weasels turn white in winter and they become ermine. Uh, Snowshoe hares become white. And I'm sure if they had to, if they could stop it, they probably would because they want to blend in with their environment, the landscape. So you're thinking, yeah, I I probably shouldn't be white right now. I should be a different color. But they're not chameleon-like, so they're unable to change, uh, just change their mind and change their colors of their plumage or um, pelage, Uh, not plumage so much. Uh, Another person at the Owatonna Women's Club asked me, why do ostriches stick their head into the sand? Hmm. Well, it's it's a popular myth. 
ostriches really don't stick their heads in the sand. And this, of course, this myth has led to a common metaphor for someone avoiding their problems. We'll talk about our boss. Well, he just sticks his head in the sand when it comes about Harley there. He's got to do something about him. But no, he just sticks his head in the sand. And we all know what they mean. He's just trying to avoid it and hope it goes away. And this belief began with observations of ostriches nesting and being stalked by predators. So ostriches bury their eggs in the sand. And then if you've had chickens in an incubator or something, you know you have to turn them every so often. So ostriches, again, they bury their eggs in the sand and they use their beaks to turn them, which makes it look like they're sticking their heads in the sand. And then ostriches lower their heads to blend in with their surroundings and make themselves less of a target when they encounter danger. And again, this behavior made people think the big bird's heads were buried in the sand because I don't see the head of that bird anymore. It's down in the sand. What a dumb bird hiding in the sand, just <laughs> its head. And I have, uh, I, I've seen raccoons go up in a tree, particularly younger ones, and I look up at them and they cover their eyes with their paws. And uh, somebody says, well, if, I, if they can't see me, I can't see them. I think it's just because uh, so many predators probably look for eyes and things so the raccoon by covering its eyes then uh, people can't see it it eliminates some eye shine and all these kind of things so uh, a listener texan said i heard you on the radio al and you said fog eats snow how does it do that well it orders it usually at the drive through like at mcdonald's or somewhere says i need some snow it, it doesn't literally eat snow or make it vanish magically before our very eyes. I always love that, before our very eyes. My, my parents used to say that every so often. Oh, before our very eyes, it's spring already. <laughs> uh, fog makes the snow melt faster, and above freezing air temperature contributes to snow melt, which we often get with fog. And when fog forms, there's some condensation taking place, which releases energy as heat into the air, and this added heat increases the rate at which the snow melts. Uh, water droplets from the fog will certainly melt some snow. And the fog, specifically, what is it called? Advection fog, I believe. That develops because the air and the dew point temperatures are warmer than the snowpack temperature. Remember snowpack, when we used to have snowpack, piles of snow and everything we haven't got? It. I'm not tempting the weather gods either here. <laughs> so I, uh, The cold snow causes the air to cool, and then it becomes saturated, and there's a positive condensation from the air onto the snow. Uh, fog also absorbs and then re-radiates long-wave radiation, which helps melt the snow. So it, it certainly does eat up the snow. Uh, a listener said, Al, do turkey vultures make sounds? Yeah, they say, hey, buddy, are you going to eat the rest of that possum? No, they, they don't really say that. They produce, uh, I've been around a lot of turkey vultures that are used in as education birds, and they're just lovely birds. They produce a uh, low guttural hiss 
when they're irritated or vying for a spot on a carcass. And they tell me they give a low nasal whine sometimes while in flight. I've not heard that, but I have certainly heard that hiss. It's a a pretty cool thing to see. And there used to be a cartoon with, was it Buzz Buzzard when I was a kid? And, of course, he was not a buzzard. A buzzard is a a hawk, like our red-tailed hawk here in Minnesota. Um, It's... I don't know how it came. Again, it was settlers, early settlers came here, and they saw the turkey vultures, and they thought they looked like the buzzards, the hawks Mm. from the old country, and they started calling them buzzards, and that name... That name still um, still hangs in there. I still hear people referring to buzzards, and uh, they aren't. Uh, and again, uh, vultures and buzzards, I just think we're great nicknames for athletic teams, but they don't <laughs> seem to really catch on, do they? It, 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 more's the pity. You know, you were mentioning the sound that they make. Have you ever listened to cats when they're fighting over a, a mouse or food or something, how they make that low guttural kind of a weird sound, too? I think probably... I don't know, maybe your your brother maybe had one of those, too, and when you were younger, too, had some weird sound, because I think that's just a natural thing yeah. when you're like, don't take my food. Yeah, every boy has weird sounds. They just, <laughs> a lot of them are natural, but some are, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, there's, there's a bird called a tricolored blackbird that's seen out West Californian places. They make a sound to me, and I know everybody's ears are different, but to me they sound like a cat fight. They just have all that. It, it just seems odd when you hear a flock of those guys making it. We have brewers blackbirds that we see occasionally around here, and if you get, uh, oh, south and west a little bit to some of the huge feedlots, you'll see a lot of brewers blackbirds. And they sound like somebody's getting a wet slap to the face. Uh, it's just a really neat song, and uh, our call. It's not such a neat song. <laughs> but it, it's a, a lot of strange calls that we hear out there, and we all come up our ears, kind of send something to the brain right away. You know what that sounds like? You know what that sounds like? And the brain is trying to ignore them, and then finally the ears get through. But it sounds like somebody just getting a wet slap to the face. <laughs> I, um, I've seen some, an oak tree, we have like one oak tree in my yard, and it's hanging on to its leaves in the winter, mm-hmm. and boy, why do you do that? And it's called marcescence, oh. and it's typically a juvenile trait. They just haven't quite matured enough, and theories abound as to what benefit a tree derives from persistent leaves. The rest of them all drop in those, of course, not the evergreens, but the deciduous trees, they're supposed to drop their leaves. Didn't this one get the memo? Well, the dead, dry leaves might make the tree less appetizing to a deer. A deer might say, oh, I need some leaves. I love to eat. Oh, eosh. Those look terrible. I'm not <laughs> eating those. It would be like us getting that brown lettuce salad. Or the, uh, and the living snow fence. So it has a living snow fence of leaves. That might trap moisture for the tree to use. And marcescence might preserve leaves for mulch in the spring. So it has its own mulch in the spring to help it. And or marcescence might 
be just to give us something else to wonder about. (laughs) Why is that tree doing that? I see it in some other tree species as well, and uh, uh, most of them seem to be smaller trees, so that's where the juvenile tree would come in. Now, I notice buckthorns, they like to hang on to their leaves longer. Not all winter, but they're the last thing it seems to hang on, and and that's how you can tell them. And I think, aren't they among the first to come out in the spring as well? Yeah, it seems like they're always there with their leaves. Yeah. They just uh, they keep them for a good share of the winter, and then they drop them, and bef- you turn around and look back, and they're already budding out again. They're, uh, you can see why people why they were sold in nurseries, and people bought them because they're yeah. so hardy. Yep. They have berries that the birds eat, and they make nice hedges. You can cut them, and they don't uh, they don't die. They survive, send up a <laughs> sucker, and so they were just like the perfect tree, small tree, which you know all too often when perfect things they don't turn out to be so perfect. They have other problems. Yeah, they're perfect until they aren't, that's for sure. Hey, I I just got a text from our friends Jennifer and Lily. Sure. And and this is like a TJ question, too, so she should meet TJ because I think this would be a... She says, hello, ma'am, please ask the bird guy about reptiles. Do we have any reptiles here in southern Minnesota besides snakes? We've never seen any except at the Rad Zoo. Thank you, Jennifer and Lily. Ah, the Rad Zoo. Yeah. Yeah, you should meet. Everybody should meet um, TJ. You know, I, you, your life isn't complete without meeting TJ. Yeah. TJ is, uh, he's a, a reptile and amphibian aholic, if I can put that mm-hmm. all into one word. He just loves yeah, those things and he knows about them and he's out there looking for them, I think, at all times of the day, uh, every day of the year. But we do have uh, we do have things in Minnesota, so there are a number of things along that line. Of course, in the amphibians, we have frogs and toads, and we have uh, tree frogs and frogs like uh, leopard frogs and that sort of thing. And we have salamanders. Mm-hmm. But we have turtles. Yep. We have uh, um, TJ would be able to give the exact number of species there. But we have a number of turtles. Uh, we think of uh, oh, as snapping turtles. But we have a lot soft-shelled turtles, painted turtles. We have a lot of different kinds of turtles. Do we have lizards? Well, really, we have skinks. So they would be uh, considered lizards. So we have a number of them down here. And as far as species of snakes, there's there's a bunch of them. So we do have the snakes we see the most common, of course, is the garter snake. And that's, but my favorites have always been the red belly snake. I, I just think they're the cutest little thing. Sometimes they're about the size of a... Um, Oh, a night crawler, probably. And then I, uh, when I was a kid, we called them grass snakes. Uh, I think their real name now is smooth green snake, which makes you think they're at a disco or something <laughs> and dancing. And but so we have we have a lot of snakes and things out there. And boy, TJ will uh, he'd tell you where to find them. I think Jennifer commented just after you were chatting. He goes, she wrote, totally forgot about turtles. Ha ha. Yep, they're, they're definitely one. And I was going to say one of the most fun people 
people to be a Facebook friend is with TJ because he goes out on the river and he finds more reptiles and amphibians and he takes pictures and he shows them and he talks about them because that's his background and it's just so fascinating. So, you know, if you want to meet somebody, like you said, you got to meet uh, TJ. He's a knowledgeable guy. Plus, he's got a bunch in his house. I think he keeps a bunch of snakes and things in his house along with all those cats. So... Good guy. And he makes uh, musical instruments yes. on top of that. Yes, such so. a talented guy. Hey, he, he doesn't make them out of snakes or anything, but he makes he still makes musical instruments. So. <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, John commented, our friend in New Ulm, he said he knew a mosquito that traveled 110 miles. He said, <laughs> it was in my car when I, I drove so. from New Ulm <laughs> to Andover. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And well, I hope he let it out because uh, <laughs> we all know Andover has a, a, a huge shortage of mosquitoes, right. so they need more up there. <laughs> and he also said, almost comedy by John, I wrote a note at work about Mellow Yellow. Thought Mellow Yellow could have been named Casual Hello. If no <laughs> Dr. Pepper, Dr. Pepper, or if no doctor, Dr. Pepper would be Nurse Pepper. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> oh, sure. Minute, pepper. Minute made could be quick service. High, yeah. high C could be high tide or high V with the letter V or high Q, yep. etc. Reporting live from the corner of nowhere and somewhere, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, John. Hey, thanks, everybody. Man, it's great to hear from you all. Um, Thanks for sitting on the front porch with us. Uh, Groundhog Day is past. Uh, I enjoyed the movie. I really, I love that movie. And February gives us our first 10-hour days of daylight in a single day. The interiors of park car, park vehicles, uh, warm in the sunlight. Greenhouse plants become as perky as Mary Richards in February. Uh, February's like the theme song of the Mary Tyler Moore show, which described the character Mary Richards, played by Mary Tyler Moore. Who can turn the world on with her smile at ass? February can. Remember, folks, Heartland is well worth driving past. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you all for listening. And, Karen, thank you, as always, for your exquisite company. Well, thank you, Alan. Again, happy birthday to your beautiful wife, Gail. Tell her we said Yeah, something. thanks. Now I won't have to get her anything. Okay, so. good. All right. Thanks, Al. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Our good friend, Al Bat. Always fun to chat with him. It is 1032. And